This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Bailey here. I'm so fucking Are you not tired. present today? I'm so fucking tired today. Jesus. I know, I know the feeling. I think I got about three hours last yeah, night. I blame women. So do I, funnily enough. Excellent. Got off to a good start. Talking about women, um, some woman who is quite high-powered is apparently uh, wanted for assault. Right. So I think her name's Grace. Uh, opposite to track because she's not graceful in any way. Um, yeah, Grace Mugabe like beat up her boyfriend. I mean, her boyfriend. Maybe it's her boyfriend's girlfriend. Who knows? It's her daughter's boyfriend or her what? Son's her son's girlfriend. She's like she all beat over her, the place. Beat her with a belt in the middle of Santon. So I thought. Okay. I heard it was an extension cord. Okay, whichever. Maybe she used it as a belt. Who knows? <laughs> but nevertheless, and then uh, Fikile in all his glory said, "Don't worry, she handed herself in. She wasn't arrested because she came peacefully." Those were his words. And then. And then, uh, yeah, she came peacefully to, I think, Watercliff Airbase. You know, and left the country. Accompanied by Saps. Uh, and, yeah, she arrived in Harare this afternoon. <laughs> cool. John, that's the same for Kile who uh, said that in a cash and transit heist, uh, four perpetrators uh, did the cash and transit heist, four had been killed, and one had been taken to hospital. Indeed. And this is the same for Kile who said he'll eradicate <laughs> crime by December 2017. Eradicated completely. Absolutely. Don't you read the news? <laughs> he is, he's a legend in his own time and his own mind. He really. Well, someone has he, to he, think he's a legend. <laughs> I suppose it could be him. He, uh, probably got hold of one of those, you know, those nineties motivational videos where they told you to like stand in front of the mirror every morning and, and say how great you were. Like that scene from Cool Runnings. Do you remember it? No. Oh, well. I don't know what Cool Runnings is. Please tell me our guest from your visit. Of course I remember Cool Runnings. It's basically religion for those of us who were born in the 80s. Damn straight, except Ramon, because he was on a farm, like, I don't know, shooting things. I didn't get TV until 2001, so... Fair enough. It, they're showing reruns, though. I mean, I would expect at the very least you would have caught up by now, but... Yeah. Well, yes, yeah, but I have, I have a wife and a daughter and two pugs, Mike. Fair enough. Where must I yes, find And the time? pugs, listen, the pugs are dangerous. <laughs> We've discussed this, actually, because um, Chester Bennington owned a pug. Uh, who was the other guy who hung himself? Robin Williams. Did he own a pug as well? He did, yes. <laughs> Pretty much go look at all the celebrities who've killed themselves in the last like couple of years. Um, and, uh, all, all pug owners. Right. So, so pugs are, are rising up. So, um, for Christmas, I think we should send a lot of pugs to Prime Media. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and Kosatu. And especially the communists. They love pugs. I mean, they're going to eat them sooner or later when the room comes in, but. <laughs> So Beautiful. if I wasn't nervous before this, we've, we've managed to, <laughs> shall I list them? We've managed to discriminate, I think, heavily against pugs, first of all, which as a dog lover and a dog nonconformist, I feel necessary to point out really early. We've also pointed out that Grace has left. Um, I, if I wasn't feeling uncomfortable before, I really am now because I didn't even know she was in the country. Um, and, uh, and yeah, <laughs> looking forward to a diverse, uh, conversation from here on in. No, we thought we would just ease you in. Thanks, guys. Really. That was, that we, was we did that. And if you're wondering who's speaking, so yeah, maybe the, the guest today is Mark Stopforth. Mark is the CEO of Cerebra, um, which is involved in advertising and media, social media. But Mark, do you want to tell us more about what your company does and what you do? Sure. We can do that quickly. Um, Cerebra 
uh, helps big corporates uh, to attempt not to embarrass themselves in Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and we do that by helping them create content and managing communities for them. And we do some advisory stuff, uh, specifically around crisis, uh, which uh, in social media happens relatively often. Yeah. Uh, we do a little bit of work around uh, training and education. So we've got an academy. Um, and, and that's been the bulk, bulk of our offering for the last 11 years. We've been around for, for quite some time. So my first question, when there is a crisis on social media, so when the work Twitter comes after whatever, Standard Bank for a purportedly, who knows what, racist ad, why don't you just tell Standard Bank to reply, fuck off, to every single tweet? It's so unusual that you guys would begin the show with sarcasm. (laughs) No, he's not being sarcastic. I'm not being sarcastic. (laughs) You you know Wit's rule, Wit's law. Wit's law is never apologize. So, no, no, I gathered. So, so I guess one of the reasons why we'd suggest that is that it's possible that the vast majority of their base would find that, um, would find that offensive. And if that was the case, uh, and I guess the next question would be whether or not they would act on that offense and potentially switch banks or, um, act out in any other way. Um, I, I think corporates are complex animals, right? And because they're complex animals, they're often connected to a multitude of, um, a multitude of dependencies. I'm trying to be as diplomatic as I humanly can. Inherit, I'm not sure if that's come out. But, but the bottom line is that I think big business is incredibly afraid of upsetting people, whoever that is. And so they will generally err on the side of caution. And, and I guess not always for the right reasons, but yeah. always. All right. But you've seen social media grow. Just today, having a conversation with someone on Facebook who posted, you know, what a basically what a sewer Twitter's become. Uh, on Facebook. Well, they, yeah, they were posting that, which is funny actually, because five years ago, everyone on Twitter used to mock Facebook and say how terrible Facebook was. And Indeed. it seems as if Facebook has actually come back into some sort of vogue, maybe because you can have bigger conversations and longer conversations, explain yourself and not be so vitriolic, um, which 140 characters pushes people towards. It's a good point. Yeah. Um, but you started when social media was a much happier place to be. Uh, I was reminiscing about Twitter. I got onto Twitter because I thought it was amazing that this was 2010. I thought it was amazing that I could go onto Twitter under my own name and I could pretty much tweet the president of the United States. And at that point, um, he didn't have that many followers and there was a chance that he was going to read my message to him. And in, in smaller examples, certainly I didn't expect a reply from the, you know, the president of the US, but uh, in other examples where you could get hold of people you would otherwise never have contact with, you know, celebrities or, or politicians or just authors. Admitted, admit you were just a Trevor Noah fanboy. Maybe you still are. But you told me you could speak to Trevor Noah all day on Twitter and like it was. Well, actually, yeah, I did, I did, uh, I did connect with Trevor on Twitter originally, and that's how I became. And you've had zero effect on him because now he's a fucking filthy lefty. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor, Trevor still follows me, I'll have you know, and uh, he's he's a lot more thoughtful than he gets given credit for because he's presenting a show, which is a left-wing show, uh, and I think that that's what he has to present. Uh, I think in quiet time alone or with uh, close friends, 
he is a lot more thoughtful than just pushing a leftist view. Right. Pop him a DM I, and I, tell him to come on the show. So. I don't know the chap, so, so I'm not I'm not sure. But mm. but I can tell you a funny Trevor Noah story, if you like. Yes, let's go so, for so it. So many, many moons ago, we used to do work for a car brand. And that car brand sponsored Francois Stein when he could still play rugby. And uh, and the, you guys don't know who I'm talking no, about. No, I know okay, exactly who you're talking right, about. Okay. Ramon has no idea. Okay. All right. So 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 – they had this Francois Stein event and we put on a big show and we had an MC and that MC at the time, this is, as I said, 10 years ago was, was Trevor Noah. And so it wasn't a particularly, uh, a big name at that point in time. And I think was still, still forging a reputation for himself locally, but I've got a photo of trawling through old photos on uh, Flickr the other day of all places and found this image where I typed, the legend Francois Stein and MC at the following <laughs> venue. <laughs> Obviously not Our entirely sure changed. who it was. Absolutely, absolutely. So I guess video evidence is important. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's not the first time I've, I've made a fool of myself in that arena. But I think you, you're cutting on to something really interesting because the magic of social media, the yeah. big promise of social media was that it could reduce some of the barriers between the traditional gatekeepers of publishing and the everyday human being, right? Like anybody, I guess, yeah. could publish. And it was a fun place to be as well. Yeah, but like a bit of a gold rush, a bit of a Wild West kind of scenario where you could stake your claim and, and, and lay a foundation and build a network and become an influencer. And all of those were really, really cool things. I think what we hadn't really understood as we were um, rushing to gather gold was the implications of published opinion in a forum like that without the necessary rigor and uh, guidelines that would go with publishing. I mean, in the past, if you wanted to be a publisher or a journalist, you would study, uh, you would learn about fact finding and research <laughs> and little things like grammar uh, and bits and pieces or, or, like that. Or what and you should and probably shouldn't say in terms of reputation management. Yeah, or the, uh, just the ability to stop and think about what it was that you were reading or sharing or, or composing. And, and I, what we, what I think we've produced is a very different approach to publishing and one that we all embrace and get really excited about. But it has, it has some big pitfalls attached to it. And that's, that's a scary prospect as well. I mean, I don't, I disagree with both of you. I think Twitter's great, even now. Sorry, I do still think that it's great. Oh, right. Sorry. Love Twitter. Honestly. I don't think it's a, I don't think it is a sewer at all. I think what it is, is what you use it for. It can either be a wonderful way to edify your vo- your worldview and support everything you believe about the universe around you through other people's opinions, regardless of who they are. Or it can be a great way, I think, to challenge some of your thinking and to engage in debate and to maybe strip away some of the echo chamber. Right? And more importantly, to meet people. Yeah. Cause I, met, I met Jonathan on Twitter. I met... And aren't we all grateful for that? Yeah. I met Gareth on Twitter. I met hundreds, more hundreds, a few dozen no, people prob- on Twitter. Prob- probably. Uh, I, I would mean, agree with you. I've also what, it's what you use it for. Met many people and, and made a lot of contacts, business, all, all the rest of it through, through Twitter. I just currently at the moment, I'm finding it uh, quite vitriolic, to be honest. A lot of the stuff that's on my timeline, and it could be to do with who I follow. Uh, I do have a broad uh, group, though, so it's vitriolic from both sides. For example, this latest stuff with Nazis. I've got a whole bunch of people who are, you know, going off at Nazis. And then I've got a whole bunch of people defending, not Nazis, but, you know, freedom of speech and going after Antifa or Black Lives Matter. So I, I don't feel like it's an echo chamber. I just feel like the points being made very often are just just pushing the boundaries on kind of there's no reasonable discussion to be had there so that's what i'm talking but about but it's not the platform for reasonable discussion 
Yeah. I mean, and, and I think that is another point is that right. what we're expecting to, or the cases that we're expecting to make, and I guess the classic example here would be one of your, your previous hosts, um, um, Helen Ziller, who opted to express an opinion on a channel that's very difficult to express a complex opinion on. Mm. Uh, the merits of that approach and the opinion are, are kind of irrelevant. I think the point is that it's worth remembering that it's 140 characters and with that comes incredible challenges around nuance and context and all of the other bits and pieces that make that kind of discussion important, you know? All right. So, so when someone gets it wrong, cause you, you're advising these corporates, what's kind of the, the, the strategic approach? So I guess, I guess one of the first things we encourage people to do is to listen uh, and understand the context and understand the response and the nature of the response. Um, Organizations are incredibly uh, passionate about their brands and in many instances very protective and defensive around those brands. So any insult, any uh, detractor, regardless of their status, regardless of their credibility, uh, regardless of their resulting influence would cause significant pain. And the instinct, I think, for many people, from, certainly from the traditional comms and marketing space, would be to sort of knee-jerk response to that. And what I think many of our clients don't understand is that the response validates the complaint. Uh, exactly. And that's a, that's a big point that I don't think we – and I think that applies in a personal capacity as well, sure. is that the, the opinions that we entertain with our responses, with our engagement, mm. va- are validated by our recognition of them, our, our validated by a response. So we, we would we would suggest that they pick and choose their battles very carefully and that their responses are as authentic and as vulnerable as humanly possible because it's very difficult to argue with somebody that goes, I'm sorry I was wrong, if they are. Uh, yeah. But uh, but this has also led us into the, you know, complain about a brand and because what happened originally with Twitter many years back um, and Facebook to some extent was a brand did something wrong. Everyone went on Twitter and started going, this brand did whatever. Yeah. Uh, and brands actually didn't, had no idea how to deal with it. It had a lot of impact. You were able to get freebies and, you know, really have a lot of sway on brands uh, in the beginning. Um, and then they kind of have shut down. So now if you make a complaint, they go, we're sorry to hear that. Please DM us and tell us more. Uh, I suppose that's kind of not escalating and more de-escalating and not engaging with necessarily what the complaint is, but just saying, look, we'll, we'll, we'll take it further, but trying to take it offline. Is that something you guys kind of recommend? So certainly something we think about because the, you must remember the novelty and the allure of the space has meant that brands gravitated very quickly to using it as a communication channel. Then it became as a direct result, a customer care channel, which they would instinctively, as I mentioned before, overcompensate in, which meant that people, I mean, if you've got a yard of 50 dogs and one's barking really loudly and you throw a stake to that dog, all the other dogs are going to start barking really loudly because that's how you get a stake. Um, so, So I think what happened was people learned that this was a place that was painful for brands, a place that they could inflict the most damage. And obviously, if I'm going to try and cause a brand pain or an organization pain, I'm going to default to the platform that I'm going to get the best return on, right? I'm not going to phone the call center and see if I find someone who cares or email. So, so one of the things we talk to, talk to our clients about is, is the, the direct commercial impact or the measurable commercial impact of a complaint or a crisis. We talk about, um, regulating response, the nature of the response and the level of the response and the timing of the response in, in a 
correlated way to the other service channels that they have. So we try and think of it as another service channel and not the most painful because we tend to, you know, and when I say we, I mean the proverbial, we tend to yeah. overcompensate in that arena. We don't understand it as well as we should yet. Do you know a company called Protein World? I don't. In know. Britain. They had a poster in the tube in, in London. And it says, oh, are you yes. beach, are you beach body ready? And yes. it had like a really beautiful. Do you woman. mind? It's, it's, it's. And a guy. It's my story. Like, come on. Deplatformed on my yeah. own podcast. If you could avoid diminishing. I will, I will, I'll just mute him. The one that would be just great. carry on. Literally shaking. Anyway, they had a, they had a, a poster, a few posters actually, saying, are you beach body ready? And they had like a beautiful woman and apparently a good looking guy. I don't know. I don't look at guys. Nevertheless. And then people got really outraged. Do. do you? I mean, okay. If I had to choose Michael Fassbender, but never mind. People got really offended by this poster and started hurling abuse at the poster wall. They drew all over the posters and on Twitter. Protein World just responded, we don't care. And yeah. Don't foist your insecurities on us. Yeah. And, and, and they had like, and they reinvested in the campaign actually. Yeah. But they made, you know, a lot more sales than, than ever before. Okay. Now I don't know what's wrong with them, but what happened to them. But that was for me, one of the first times a brand said, we actually don't give a shit because your complaints are not, um, material, maybe not material. And yeah. Okay. So, so I think I think that that's a conversation around because there's two conversations there. There's conversations around whether whether the audience had a case and whether the brand gave a damn, right? And whether mm. the brand gave a damn has got a lot to do with the values of that organization and what they consider to be important. So recently there was an agency that released a video, like an anti-snowflake video. I don't know if you saw that one where they were kind of, ah, mm. yeah, the, the, taking, taking a They're stab ripping, at… Ripping off uh, social justice warriors. Yeah, and, and, and using it as a, a recruitment drive for individuals that identified with that sentiment, right? But it was it, it, it's authentic to who they are. It's aligned to their values. Not every business is… Necessarily that explicit about who they are and what their values are. But I think, I think the question from a brand perspective is regardless of whether you're going to bend over backwards to accommodate every complaint from every field or if you're going to do everything that you can to, uh, make sure you stand by a particular view, it's got a lot to do with your, your security and your own identity. It's got a lot to do with the esteem you have. In your own organization, it's got a lot to do with, I think, how much you allow the consumer to dictate your journey as opposed to shareholders. And those are all sorts of different dynamics that we could debate the merits of from a corporate perspective. I do think that a lot of the complaints that are leveled at brands today are important for brands to listen to, even if purely from a marketing and capitalistic perspective, even if purely to be able to take advantage of in future. And I think many brands do, and possibly in a, even in a non-authentic way, right? Um, the, the, the challenge is whether it's consistent or not. I think that's the biggest, um, the biggest battle that brands face today is, is what is the promise you're making and, and what is the gap between the promise you're making and what people are experiencing in real life? That's marketing's only problem today. It, you know, previously, I think marketing was afforded the luxury of just telling people what to think about the organization and your ability to express your agreement or disagreement with that was very limited. Mm. But today, I mean, you know, opinions are fact, right? Um, and so are, are alternative and, facts <laughs> and are expressed on any platform, uh, with, with varying degrees of success or not. And I think organizations are grappling with that because kind of their, their essence is being exposed. Um, Has advertising kind of kept up because to me it seems like it really hasn't uh, we did discuss on last week's show 
uh, how great TV advertising, for example, was. South African TV advertising, late early 90s, actually through the 90s into the early 2000s. Um, seems like that's not really the case anymore. I'm not sure TV advertising is really the platform anymore. I uh, fast forward through television ads if I'm watching on a platform that is, even has them. Um, but has advertising adjusted to the new space that we're in? Yeah, so I think, I think there's, again, there's two discussions. The first one is, is advertising keeping up with the digital revolution? And I mean, that's a very broad discussion around, is Facebook more compelling than television? Are billboards more interesting than digital display? And I think it's very much a video didn't kill the radio star kind of thing. A lot of the stuff that we assumed would happen on the back of the digital and social revolution hasn't really happened. People are still buying billboards and still making TV ads and still booking radio. And that's great because I think they're part of an ecosystem that's dependent, interdependent. The other discussion is whether the advertising industry itself has kept up. And that, that was, that's a discussion we can have more in terms of the local context. And I think, one of the things that the advertising industry is, is accused of, and this could be part of our debate moving forwards, is that a lot of the decisions that are made around messaging to audiences, um, especially audiences that are up and coming audiences that, um, are, are early or sorry, low to middle income earners are being made by individuals that are possibly not empowered to understand those audiences pro- properly, or at least to identify with them. The question about whether or not you need to in order to be an effective advertiser is one debate we can have. But I think a lot of brands tend to, uh, and certainly a lot of advertisers and agencies tend to stumble over themselves in an attempt to try and make up for that. Um, and, and some of the overcompensation we see in their responses to complaints is evident in that insecurity. So I think that's, that's an interesting discussion, but I don't think advertising as an industry mm. is really representative of the broader, um, yeah. All right. Yeah. So is, is the advertising industry the original purveyor of identity politics then? That, that's a really great question. That's not even something I've even thought of. Um, and, and, and I guess potentially could be that the, the advertising industry, uh, it persuades us, uh, encourages us to aspire towards a certain lifestyle, towards a certain, um, uh, a group, towards a certain, yeah. but it, uh, it targets ideal. us specifically based on demographics, certain yeah. factors, and yeah. those include race and gender, for example. Sure, sure. Um, and that's, you mentioned, you know, just now that's, that's something they're grappling with. So is a 50 year old copywriter who, I don't know if there are any 50 year old copywriters, but, uh, is, is, is a 50 year old white copywriter trying to sell a washing powder to a lower income segment, which in this country will be majority, majority black, um, and probably black female as well. Uh, yeah, and, sure. And, and trying to get so into the does, mind of that individual. Does, yeah. Does, does, and so that's playing identity politics. Uh, at the, at the 2017 level, um, that's, that's what's being grappled with. Yeah. So I think, I think in its simplest form, that's one of the things that we're talking about is are, are, are the large majority of creative heads or, or executive heads in, 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 in modern agencies equipped to have that conversation with brands around their audiences? That's the one. The other one is are agencies led by individuals that can identify with an audience that I guess it's come from a very different background to, to what I have. Right. Yeah. So that, that's a, that's an entirely different discussion. I don't know if I agree with this notion of, I don't think it's the argument you're making or the one you're making, John, but the, the question is, I, I'm a French Arab, right? I can 
empathize or sympathize or have uh, what, what what is another word for empathy? Someone used it the other day. It's like being a humanist, being able to feel sorry for someone without necessarily being in their shoes. Um, I'm able to do that. I mean, I don't need to be a French Arab to another, you know, and only have empathize with another French Arab sure, and or if- something like that. So I don't. If if you have a sixty year old Afrikaner running an ad agency, I don't see why he cannot market a washing powder to. Hundred percent, yeah, and I'd, uh, I'm certainly not suggesting that no. that's a rule, and sure. that uh, if you are not the person you're advertising to, you are ill-equipped to. Because I think I think a lot of people, um, a lot of people that 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 certainly are the custodians for big brands and and are the custodians of large advertising agencies have proven that they can be deeply empathetic and be creative within that empathy and understand realities that are outside of their own experience. Obviously, I mean, so are many uh, authors and so are many film directors and so on and so forth. And, and so I, I don't think that's an exclusive rule at all. Right. Um, but I think if the advertising industry is going to keep up with what is a rapidly changing economic environment in South Africa, one of the things that we have to understand is, is the way we frame organizations and brands in the minds of our consumers is often very different if if it's coming from our perspective. Oh sure. Um so I think I think uh that that's something that we're wrestling with and grappling with at the moment. And one of the issues that we have is that fast tracking young black talent through through the advertising industry in South Africa is is uh, is incredibly difficult, not because the intent is not there, but because in practice a lot of those individuals will leave at the at the key moment in the organization and get sucked up into the corporate Environment and be part of the client side uh, conversation, which is great for them individually. Right. But we don't do a really good job from an advertising agency perspective of retaining those individuals. Yeah, retention is tough. I've heard yeah. that quite a bit with with uh, black middle class people. They they get sucked up a lot by 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 often their clients. Not not particularly in the advertising industry, but um, it's I don't know I don't know why. Maybe it's rare to have like. And I think that's, that's, that's one of the, that's one of the pillars of what the BE Act is trying to achieve is to get, get key decision makers in big corporates who are effectively controlling our economy, uh, uh more representative of, of the population. That's a discussion we can have. Um, the, the, the interesting thing though is that from a services industry perspective, it strips out a lot of the leadership layer quite quickly because, True. uh, we're not able to compete, hmm. uh, from, it might sound to, to, to the audience like an excuse and in some ways maybe it is um, you must also understand that that a lot of the advertising ag- agencies in South Africa in the world are owned by four or five huge global conglomerates that yes. are um, not all that interested in relinquishing the control of those commercial entities um, to local local representatives or local offices. So our business, as an example, is owned by WPP. WPP is a is a global organization, and control is the key premise of their their ownership model. So to try and 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 bring a solution to that organization, which has a you know a, a, a multi billion euro uh, a balance sheet, and 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 to try and help them understand why my tiny little business in South Africa needs to have its control changed is a is a difficult discussion to have at that level sure. because I I can't actually make that decision anymore. Um, they own all yeah. of the, all of this that you see <laughs> is theirs. It's all theirs. <laughs> so so, but like I guess the, the the question we're trying to answer is is um, is advertising still meaningful in this context considering the people who hold 
the ownership or at least the control of the advertising industry. And I think it's been challenged big time. I mean, we know how aggressively the codes, uh, BE codes are being revised specifically around the marketing and advertising charter now in 2018. You, you simply do not have an option anymore. Um, and I know certainly behind the scenes. An option too? An option not to acknowledge ownership or control as a, as a as a consideration and a factor for achieving the right kind of, of BE level in order to be competitive in the market. You have to relinquish control. You have to relinquish ownership. We are not going to be competitive unless we find a way to fast track black talent into those, those positions. You, you could be a government spokesperson. You would, uh, did I do okay there? Yeah, you did quite yeah, well. Yeah. We would, but, but we won't be able to compete without good BE and, uh, no, but, and so, representativity. So, so and, but remember, I've been a part of this for 11 years. So it's yeah. not like I've come into the industry and I'm going, oh, this is a problem that we've been presented with. I've had over 250 people go through the Cerebra environment over the last couple of years. And, and I've watched how difficult it is for black talent to identify with my, uh, you know, to go, oh, this, this is a great company and I'm happy here and, I think people are relatively happy there, but, but to look at me as an example of what they can achieve and identify. And a lot of that is in, in the identity politics that you spoke about before. And, and I, I get that. And we can, we can, again, we can argue against that, but for them to feel like they can move through the ranks and have a likely chance of usurping me from that seat one day is a very difficult reality to, to, to bank on. Well, I think you're doing corporate culture wrong then. Because corporate, corporate culture sucks individuality from everyone equally. Um, Maybe not in advertising. I've never been in advertising. So that's a really good point. And, it's, and I think it's a good point because I think if we're going to try and be a good social business as Cerebra, one of the things that I think social media has done is amplified the individuality and humanity of the audience. Right. It used to be, as you said, the demographic. If you have a fridge and a microwave, you're exactly the same as these 8 million other people, right? Yeah. So one of the things that's challenging for organizations in the social media space is that suddenly you have to consider an individual or a human and all the things that go. So in our business, we try and replicate that because we want to eat our own cooking, right? We try not to turn our individuals into barcodes or, or numbers or whatever it might be. But, but then you lose them. Or, or, or there's, there's, uh, different, different goals, different objectives, different and, and, feelings. And that's the, that's the tightrope. So, so I'm, I'm cool walking that. And, and I actually do believe, I really do believe that in our context, and I mean, this is where my liberal worldview is going to come into the discussion. In our context, um, a, a considered and deliberate and authentic application to the BE codes is good business. As a capitalist, I believe that it's good business. Okay. Because I believe it gets the best out of my people, sure. and I believe that my people, specifically in my services business, right. are a means to good business. Sure, but you can't do that without BE codes, without without the state enforcing. One hundred percent. I'm exactly. suggesting that without the choice, I may as well be intentional. Yeah. Look, I, I, there's no doubt that business will find a way to make BE work for it. The reality is, we've had it on the books for I think more than a decade now. Business creates BE. Yes. Well, there's that too. Yeah. Um, but they're large, and they're, as Ramon just pointed to, they're large organizations that made a lot of money from, from being able to exploit the BE that they either helped create or, or Ramon in the background is saying, or bribe for. The point is, is, is business will always find a way. That's the, the capitalist nature of things. I'm just wondering, don't you find a problem in just shutting down the meritocracy to some 
extent because it's not to say that up and coming black talent isn't talented. It's to say that when you turn around and go, we only want to look at one particular group of people because we're trying to give them a leg up. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of arguments around the leg up, but, um, if we only want to give them a leg up, we don't want to give this other group a leg up. And therefore, it doesn't matter how talented the other group is, we're going to ignore them. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that, while that, while that may be something that businesses can do, and I, I fully buy it, and you can be successful, um, is it something that's right to do? So while I, I think that we've got to be careful that we don't suggest that minimizing the meritocracy results mm. in a binary or has a binary outcome, right? So it's not like all white people will do shit and all black people will do great if we mm. reduce the influence of the meritocracy on our system. What it does do, what it does do though, is it forces a category or a group of people into a very specific channel, which has other implications outside of that. So other things start to shift, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively. But because you're putting enormous pressure on a system that is fundamental to how capitalism is always kind of churned and worked and so on. It has implications outside of that realm on education, uh, as an example, on uh, perhaps uh, the family construct, specifically around how individuals in, in, in higher income families relate to their dependents and to the other, um, the other circles of family around them. But I think that community um, – uh, our, our businesses, small business specifically, and then the way that big organizations make decisions about how they procure from have had, um, there've been a lot of positive outcomes of squeezing the right category into the right pipe, uh, in, in, in the beat. But, sure. uh, but there's also been a lot of pain as well. And, and we've lost, I think, a lot of good people who haven't felt like they have a home in South Africa anymore, that haven't felt like they have a role to play mm. in, in this context. And that is, that's really tragic. Um, so I guess the onus is on business either to fast track those individuals into a position where they can perform those roles or not. And business will pay either way. Right. I mean, I think it's just good business sense to, to have people within the organization that are representative of, of the country, not due, not for some social justice cause, but because it makes financial and, and makes, logical sense. There yeah. is more stuff to sell to more people because we know what they want. Sure. So I, there are logical and rational reasons to right. support it. Uh, yeah. But, but do you think that some government bureaucrat can force that? Onto, onto businesses. I mean, if, if you accept it, I mean, it's fine. It's your business. You do whatever you wish, of course. But the adverse effects on, on the people, on, I assume, black professionals themselves, uh, could be quite, not soul destroying, but are, are they there because they are needed or are they there because they have to be there? Are you filling up the, are you filling up the racial quotas? The sense of achievement is, 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 is lost some, sometimes. So. And I th- deeply patronizing to those people the, as well. The, yeah, that's the correct again, word. Again, it, it, it's difficult, I think, to, to apply a blanket sentimental feeling to the entire category because I'm sure that there are individuals that have benefited greatly from it and are fully competent and have loved every minute of it and are doing ex- extraordinarily well. There is, there are individuals that have been, uh, used as a fronting mechanism or have been popped in a position that they weren't equipped for and are enabled for that have struggled and has probably had a, a marked impact on their, um, uh, their esteem. I guess that's not my endeavor. <laughs> that's actually not my problem my problem is to figure out how as a white business owner in this context i can run the best possible business accounting hopefully with with a sense of integrity and authenticity for what is being prescribed to me by a government official and as a um as a uh 
if I were a libertarian, I think I'd find that very difficult to, to embrace. I, I would want to vomit on that notion, <laughs> well, but, sure. but, uh, you know, as a, as a, as a liberal, I guess I embrace it as the order. Yeah, um, I, mean, I mean, there are pragmatic reasons for BE or, or against affirmative action, but just in every single case, I don't know where this worked properly ever, but I, I've done, I've, I looked at the research. I've read, uh, Thomas Sowell wrote a great book about it in 1994. It's just, it's, it's fundamentally illiberal. Um, it is discriminating against, in America, discriminating against Asians who have uh, higher SAT scores. So they are, are docked 50 points immediately. Um, it, it pushes people into positions that are not, they are not, uh, they don't have enough skills in, or, and sometimes they do have enough skills in, but they feel, am I here because of my skills or is he here because of my race? There's, I think there's far more problems with it than any solutions that it, it purports to, to solve. Yeah, yeah. And many, many, many black South Africans do very well without it. Sure. They become entrepreneurs. The, the majority of the middle class is, are professionals on their own accord and they don't need BE or, or any, you know, patronizing behavior from the state to, to be yeah. successful. Yeah. I guess, I guess I haven't even gone into the reasoning or read the books because I accept it as being my reality and I, I to be honest with you, I'm trying to keep up with it and make, yeah, <laughs> make just sure, deal with it and make, make sure we don't fall over. And, and I suppose that the, the, the merits of the philosophy are less of a consideration for me rather than as a, as a, an entrepreneur and as a bit of a, you know, I'm hacking through this thing. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to make the most of it in that context. And the, the framework I use for that is going to be largely informed by my worldview. So I'm either going sure. to choose to embrace it and, and, and be upbeat about it or at least be optimistic about it. Or I guess I'm going to be resilient and see it as a, a necessary evil, which could lead me to a position where I make poor decisions around Fast tracking or, or even loopholing or whatever it might be, which actually could have a very detrimental impact on the organization in the yeah. long run. No, I, I know you're bound by it. I'm not having a moral judgment. Yeah. I'm just, yeah. I'm just, well, sorry, I, I hear your, your, your perspective as a business owner, but you know, personally, you've said you're a liberal, um, repeatedly. Well, you say um, I'm a liberal repeatedly, um, just not on the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. You know, there's a there's another show that's hosted by a guy who thinks he's a liberal. Um, he, he doesn't do as well as us. He's on one of the uh, prime media platforms. Um, and uh, he calls himself a liberal. He's outwardly racist, um, but no, he redefines it. Let's, let's, let's be honest. He, he calls himself a recovering liberal. He used to be a liberal. He calls himself a recovering liberal? Yeah, he's, he's used the term numerous times. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't listen to his show enough. Um, I, I, it just, what does that mean to you? What do you say you're a liberal? Cause we talk about classical liberal, liberalism, liberalism on the show, excuse me, mm. uh, and obviously libertarianism because a lot of our guests lean that way and quite a number of our listeners too. Um, what is, what does being a liberal mean to you personally? So I understand, you know, from a business perspective, I don't even think it matters where you stand politically from a business perspective because the reality is, um, I'm not, an authoritarian, but if I had a business in China, um, I would be like, yeah, do whatever the government says. If you're turning a buck, you're turning a buck because I'm a capitalist. So, uh, it's kind of like, that's how it works. That's how the system goes. Um, but personally, what does it, what does it mean to you? Good question. Because I do think that I'm wholeheartedly, um, uh, 
when it comes to having an informed political debate, specifically around philosophy, I'm not, I'm not nearly well read enough or, or well schooled enough to have a qualified. What I do know though is that I came from a context that was largely politically apathetic, but in retrospect, quite conservative. I grew up in a very religious home as well. So a lot of my worldview was framed within uh, a kind of a formal religious structure. And then my journey since then has been around trying to understand the way I see the world based on that context, based on what I've been exposed to in terms of learning and then what I instinctively am attracted to. Right. So, so a lot of those things were questioned at a very fundamental level when I was presented with counter arguments and I fought a lot of them relentlessly for a very mm. long time. I mean, my journey with religion lasted until four years ago. That was, that was a long journey for me. Um, and then, and then I think what, what has come out at the, at the, at the end of the pipe is, is me identifying closely or largely with a school of thought or a philosophy that calls itself liberal. However, immediately identifying with that means that I now, <laughs> I now, I now fit into a wedge that has a number of things associated with it or enough. And I guess, you know, we were discussing some of this beforehand is that I hold many counter views, uh, and I, and I would make many arguments with people that would identify closely with the liberal philosophy because I feel like I should be able to hold some of these things in creative tension and paradox. I love paradox. I love, I love that dynamic. I love questioning. I love doubt because doubt is what keeps us intellectually rigorous. Uh, the moment we're self-assured, we're, we're fucked. Like the moment we think we know what we're talking about, we're in serious trouble, right? So those of us who have been afforded the opportunity to flex our intellectual pictorials should. And, and while I might identify with, uh, and, and have moved into a more politically, um, sympathetic state, um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be rigorous about that and I'm trying to engage in debate around it because I think, I think that's what's lacking. I think what's lacking is, is this, is robust conversation and debate and discourse, even from different worldviews around the context that we're in. Yeah. I mean, you just, you, I think you just, uh, your story just shows that like you're human, right? I mean, most, <laughs> there is that. Most, yeah. most, I think most enlightened people should have two, Divergent thoughts in their minds at the same time. That's what makes you a critical thinker. Unfortunately, and um, Thaddeus Russell is a historian. He says, in America, if you if you actually count the amount of people who actually know what they believe, yeah. it's something like less than one percent. Yeah. So people that actually question their beliefs, even you know, question their voting patterns. Most people are like automatons. They they just follow. They don't follow. They just don't question. They yeah. grew up in in this uh, sort of atmosphere or environment and. Hardly ever question it. I think the internet makes that a bit more difficult. Exactly. So if we circle back to that point, right. that's what's scary about social media. But it's still not it? fast enough. Yeah. Most people still don't question anything. Yeah. So it's either a really great way to, to gather information that challenges your notions and your core values and the beliefs that you have around the world around you, or a really great way to edify yeah. <laughs> everything you think yeah. is true. Uh, and you'll find, if you want to, you'll find evidence to support any belief system. Sure. Evidence. And, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, well, that's but, why half the world's getting red-pilled, right? So there's no equivalent for liberals becoming, you know, a whole bunch of people sitting in the middle becoming more, I use the American term liberal, of liberal there, progressives. Um, the, 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 you know, the, the, the counterculture at the moment, you know, punk rock now is, is, is 
for want of, of better terminology, conservatism. Um, and it, it, people misunderstand what conservatism is. Um, I also think religion gets thrown in there, which I, I have an issue with because I think that's different. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's that there are a whole bunch of people that are questioning that. But I agree with you. There's a number of echo chambers that have been set up too. Let's, let's get to something specific. So, mm. you know, something like racism. We were, we were talking about racism, uh, before the show started, uh, and how you view, for example, the problem in South Africa. You, you had a kind of a nice approach to what you see as, as, cause I said, look, is racism really an issue in South Africa? The data doesn't seem to indicate that. The way we live our daily lives doesn't seem to indicate that. Uh, yes, if you trawl for it, you can find a couple of idiots attacking a couple of other people at, uh, at, at a fast food outlet every now and again. Um, you can find someone calling someone else a name every now and again or writing something on Facebook. But for the most part, people go through their daily lives interacting with people who are different to them and without issue. Um, and you had a sort of an interesting approach. Yeah. So, so I think, I think we would without question, pretty much the one thing that we can all agree on is that South Africa is in a, in a tough place. Like as, as a, as a country, we are wrestling with a lot of issues. We're wrestling with economic challenges. We're wrestling with significant political challenges. We've got leadership challenges. Uh, and, and I think we have, we have a, um, I mean, we might have different theories around this, but I think some of the economic inequality that we see broadening and widening is, is creating potentially um, a, a time bomb uh, and the kind of time bomb that we've seen result in, in, in a, a significant breakdown uh, in democracy or in order um, in other, other geographies. I think, I think that trying to, and what we tend to do is when we're in pain, when we feel like things are going wrong around us, we tend to try and find a simple solution for that or a simple explanation at least. And we'll default to the thing that makes the most sense to us, right? So, um, we, we, when we don't want to be intellectually rig- rigorous, we'll try and narrow what's wrong down to one thing. So, uh, some of, uh, some of my more, uh, racist friends or more prejudiced friends would go, it's because black people got power in 1994 and because black people got power, everything's wrong in South Africa. That's not intellectually rigorous and it's a dramatic, uh, dramatically oversimplified attempt to try and explain pain, right? But you'll do that because you identify with a particular worldview and then you take your identification to the extreme and then you make that your truth, right? Mm, sure. So I think, I think a lot of, a lot of what we are experiencing at the moment has there are multiple levers in place. There are multi- we used the analogy of a Jenga tower early on, where you've got all these little bits and pieces that are informing the ability of this thing to stay upright. And when we feel like it's starting to crumble down, we tend to pull out one piece and go, it's that fucking piece. That's the piece that caused all the pain. But topics like, um, like racism, and, and we can talk about that because it's something I'm incredibly passionate about. And we had a bit of a, uh, back and forth around a post that I wrote the other day on, 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 on the topic, well, a couple of, couple of months or years ago. Um, I think that one of the, one of the dangers around any of these things, whether it's white privilege, whether it's racism, whether it's any of the, the narratives, uh, around, around cultural context is that we create false, false dichotomies around them. So we go, you either believe in white privilege or you don't, you know, so, so there's only one of two possibilities there, or you are either racist or you're not like that's possible. Like we even know that we're speaking about the same thing. And I think that the, the challenge that we have is around the nuance 
in in those terms and in what those terms mean to different people um and and in unpacking that in an intellectually rigorous way and i don't think we have spaces for that anymore because it's not that if if i said to you guys now guys i'm struggling with alcoholism i can't go to bed at night without having a drink you're going to go to me that's not fucking cool like can we I know some people like my, you know, my brother-in-law, he suffered from alcoholism and he went to AA and like maybe you can, mm. that might mean I have to go to a church, but you know, so on and so forth. And he'd go, <laughs> um, but if I sit in front of a group of friends, regardless of the color and go, guys, I'm struggling with my racism. I'm a bit fucking prejudiced. Like I've got some issues around bias. I've got, I've been working with this. I've been reading around it. I did Harvard's implicit association test and I've, I'm, I'm a bit fucking racist. There is no space where you can explore what it means to journey through degreed uh, versions of prejudice and bias, to unpack your background, to unpack where you're going to have a a, a vulnerable discussion around, I I think I might be a bit fucking racist. Like, there is no space to do that because if you're a racist, you're a fucking criminal. And if you're not a racist, you're not a fucking criminal. And there's nothing in between those two things. There's no... There's no nuance in there. No, right? of course not. Um, but, 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 so, so that's just one topic that's just racism. And we could argue the same around feminism, sexism, any of the other inequalities or, 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 or um, purported gaps in, in society. Um, but I, I'm interested in finding spaces where we can have more of those discussions. Because I guarantee you, if I'm having a dinner out with my, my very good white friends, and we are all sitting around having really nice wine and eating fillet steak and so on. We're not talking about racism. <laughs> it's not the number one issue on our agenda. Mm-hmm. But I guarantee you, if my black middle class friends are having a dinner all together, that's going to come up on the agenda. I think privilege think? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Or at least it's been reported to me as such. Um, one of, one of the, one of the crippling characteristics of privilege is that we, we fail to recognize that something's a problem if it's not a problem for us. Um, so if it's not something that's on our radar, it's clearly not an issue. Well, um, same with illness, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so, doesn't mean it's privilege though. No, but I, sure. But sure, I get your, I get yeah. your analogy. Yeah. So, so, so I think that the two are linked. I think that the conversation around this notion or the, the hypothesis or the theory behind the idea of white privilege and the ideas of racism are a conversation we need to have in tandem. So how, how do we have that conversation if you have someone like me who will Say to you, white privilege does not exist. I don't. So, so I'm not. I'm not. You know, you, you you can have these conversations quite easily with someone who will go, yes, white privilege exists. I don't think it's a problem because, and yeah. someone else will go, okay, white privilege exists, but I don't. I think it is a problem, and yeah. they're they're playing. They're on the same soccer field, right? Um, I'm not on your soccer field. Yeah. Uh, your tennis court analogy. Yeah. Um, to mention my spirit animal. Yeah. Yeah. So so. Where do you where do, where do we get where do we get to on that? Because I, you you were, you were talking about, for example, racism, and and uh, you didn't say we were definition, but you mentioned about how people view it. Yeah. Um, and definitions are important for me. So very important. So, yeah. so so I think that there there are set definitions for things. Yeah. Uh, privilege included, by the way. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, for me, I've always said privilege is something you aspire to. You aspire to okay. to become privileged because that's the whole po- point of well, not the whole point, but it's one of the points of working hard and achieving. Is that with achievement comes privilege? So in a capitalist world, you, you, if you achieve, if 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 your goal is money, for example, you achieve money, and money buys you things, and, sure. and that's that's your privilege. Um, 
And it's nothing to look down on. In fact, it's something to aspire towards from my perspective. Um, so where do we, where do, where do you think the conversation meets with, with someone like me who will say, I don't think bright privilege exists? So one of the other conversations we have around exist or non-exist is if you and I got into a debate around whether God exists or not. So I'm going, God exists and I'm convicted and I, I believe God exists and you go, God doesn't exist. And that's an impossible to debate, debate to have because it's an impossible debate to have. There's but no what, proof point. What we could talk about though is the impact of faith on our lives. Right, the psychological disposition of faith, and we could start talking about what's my experience of being faithful, mm-hmm. and what does that feel like, and how is that impacted on. So, so arguing whether white privilege exists or not is a very difficult thing for us to do, especially if our definitions are different. Again, firing incredibly beautiful ground shots at each other from different tennis courts, right? So, so what what I would want to do is maybe share with you the way I see it very quickly, sure. and we don't have to Go have the it. debate. But but what I would talk about is is personal experience. So without trying to make the theory, I'd, I'd rather share a story. But um, so for me, the best analogy for privilege is is almost is an epidermal trust fund. Okay, um, the idea that all people are issued with exactly the same amount of money in their trust fund is ridiculous. It's also ridiculous to assume that everybody will be able to benefit in the same way, or that they won't be burdened by that trust fund, or that they won't. Flaunt or flounder or abuse it in any way um, is also ridiculous. So, the assumption that white privilege affects every person with a light skin in exactly the same way is again very intellectually lazy. Right? There are people who are white who don't enjoy any privilege at all and are incredibly uh, poorly in their lives and in their luck and so on and so forth. But just because there are examples doesn't mean that the rule doesn't exist, right? If there, there are anomalies to the rule, doesn't mean that the rule doesn't apply. So, so my experience of this has been around trying to understand if there are areas in my experience of the world where I felt like I got some sort of benefit. And I, like, I kind of see it as a good thing in the same way that I would see it. If I did get a trust fund, I'd be like, fucking a, like you can fuck it up from there, but it would be nice. <laughs> I would really love to have a trust fund. Mm. So, 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 um, so the way I've navigated, I mean, and it's been a little experiences. I sold my car three years ago because I wanted to try and use Uber exclusively as, as a, as a alternative form of transport in Johannesburg. And it's been a really good experience. I've really enjoyed using it and it's, I, I've kind of learned a lot more about my city and, and I've like, I've saved a bit of time and I get to work in the car and all those things are cool. One of the interesting experiences was walking home from Nickelway the other day, um, and there was some construction happening between the intersection of Maine and Nickelway, uh, Maine and William Nickel, and there were three chaps who stopped working and asked me if I was all right, and I asked them, why do you think I'm all right, or not all right, and they said, because you've got a really fancy bag, and you're walking, where's your car? Did your car get stolen? Is Has it broken down? And we got into a conversation around it, but... The gentleman's assumption that something must be horribly wrong in my life for me to be walking down the road, uh, and my inability to recognize how weird that would be for him to experience is a simple, a very simple and very innocuous version of, of what I consider to be, um, the, the fact that I'm well dressed, I've, you know, I've got the nice watch on, I've got the nice bag on, I'm, certain things are going to pan out differently for me in a restaurant, in a meeting with a client, whatever it might, and not in every circumstance and not to the same degree. That's the important thing is this is not a binary theory. Sure. It's degrees and it's nuance. Um, but, but like, sorry, if I'm actually, yeah, sorry. And I'm, I'm overstaying my no, no, point. No, but, the slightest. Yeah. Um, but that, but that could be applicable to any defined group. So to speak. I mean, if I walk into, and I have done so before, I walk into like a, a Shabin in the CBD of Joburg. Hell, I am damn uncomfortable. Because <laughs> people are like, are you lost, bro? Like, 
what the hell are you doing here? Go to green. Okay, they don't say go, go to Greenside, or but it's deeply uncomfortable for me, right? Even though it's still the city I live in, it's still my country. Absolutely, it's, I, the, it's I think, the opposite reaction. Yeah, to you. But there's a question around whether it is uncomfortable or whether it's disadvantageous. There's there's a there's a, a slight difference between that. So I might also be uncomfortable in a Shabin uh, in Soweto. Uh, because I won't look like the regular uh, uh, patron of, of of the venue, but but the counter argument might be that a guy uh, and I want to be careful that I don't. Well, in fact, I can give a counter argument from personal experience. We uh, took our staff to Paris, um possibly a poor choice in retrospect, and uh, went to went to a club <laughs> they called, must have been so excited. called Legends. Initially. Look, we were short on venues, all right? We, <laughs> we'd done Durban, we'd done Cape Town, we'd done Sun City. We were like, where else do we go? Well, Prairie seems nice. They've got a dam there, don't they? Um, and we went to a bar called Legends on the Friday night, which was also very poorly thought out because we found out in, in, in afterwards that it was a, a bit of a, a hive mind for very violent and unpleasant individuals. And... Um, uh, it was weird how, how things panned out in the evening. Uh, we were kind of hanging about and, and, and things got really uncomfortable when, uh, black guys in our group started dancing with white girls in our group. And there were one or two individuals that took exception to that and just didn't really think it was cool in their, in their bar. And there were sort of bumps and whatnot. And, and then the guy picked a fight with us afterwards and he had like 20 mates and I did the, the thing that I thought was right at the time. And I walked out with my arms up in the air going, please guys, let's not fight. And I got so badly punched. It's quite funny because I like had a jaw and a thing and whatever else. But, but the point being is that, that, Ouch. um, had, had that happened and it might well have, maybe it would have happened if I, I guess the counter, if we reversed all of those roles and put it in a, it would have happened a, in an area, but, but, um, that's been my experience right. and I haven't had the counter experience yet. So, so if all of the evidence that's been presented to me in my experience supports the notion mm. that because I'm a white dude, things are a little easier for me. Are, are you, are you open to the idea that privilege exists? Okay. And that it's because my problem is the collective, collective nature of it. Mm. So are you open to the idea that somewhere in Lagos, there was a relatively, well-off businessman walking down the street uh, with a nice bag and a nice watch and three kind of guys on the side of the road were like, everything okay, dude? Because normally we see you guys in like bulletproof mercs. Um, you know, so that that's a, it's exact same example. Absolutely. It could possibly happen in that environment, which is a lot more uniform as a country in terms of race at least. Um, and so that's, that's where my, my dilemma comes in because the – the, or my my problem with 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 the identity politics of it and the collective nature of it, because you you are trying to be as intellectually honest as possible with the idea of white privilege, um, but I don't feel like the people who push white privilege generally are trying to be intellectually honest. Um, I don't feel like they're trying to say, you know what, it's not a all white people thing. It's it's it's. It's a concept around, you know, they'll say whiteness, for example. But so th there's there's where my issue is. It's not. Right. A, I, don't, I don't. I don't say privilege. Okay. I mean, with respect, I think that's a separate argument. Okay. Well, not argument or separate debate. The one we're having. My counter argument to you, Mike, is that uh, it's it's not a question of of race. It's a question of culture. Mm -hmm. South Africans are what is known as an honor culture society. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, it, it's very important that 
you know, when you go to someone's house, it's always a case of you're in my house, that's my rules type of scenario. And that, and that, that, you know, uh, how do I explain? That is, that permeates into social situations as well. Mm. If you go to a Zulu's house and you flirted with his daughter, whatever the case might be, you're going to get a slap. Yeah. Not because you're white, not because he's Zulu, not because anything. It's a, it's a cultural thing. It's my house. My daughter is this. You sit on that side. You go to an Afrikaner house, exactly the same thing will happen. Sure. But I think that's got to do with fathers not wanting guys to flirt with their daughters in front of them because I'd probably slap a dude as well. I, I think. No, true. <laughs> but in, in, the, in your bar scenario… I assume they were Afrikaners in Paris. Who owned I, don't the bar. Know, I don't know, but okay. I think some of them were because they swore at me in an Afrikaans they way. They said, Yamal, so what's it? Okay. We can assume they're Afrikaners. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. <laughs> okay, well, hypothetically, they were Afrikaners. Think about it. It's their bar. It's uh, their rules. All they know is other people of their ilk coming to the bar. And then you've got these, these fluties from Joburg with their bloody liberal, liberal mindedness coming to my bar and now they're acting deviant. Yeah. Is it a question of privilege or is it a question of just culture and people see, uh, mixed races dancing as like deviant in some way? Sure. That is a theory. I think it's a <laughs> fucking stretch. Uh, no, yeah, I think it's a stretch because it's, it's as easy to make the counter argument in that specific scenario. Right. I think this would be a very discussion to, a very easy discussion to have or at least to justify from a privilege is colorless and culture is colorless. These are other issues that are in, impacting this. So for example, if you walk into a, uh, a nice restaurant wearing a nice suit, regardless of the color that you are, the likelihood is that you'll get treated a certain way. Yes. As I, I completely understand what you're saying. There's this little thing though that I can't ignore. And that's that for the, for the vast majority of my formative years, um, I was part of a context that deliberately attempted to disenfranchise an entire group of people based purely on the color of their skin. So, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to understand how that hasn't had some sort of implication on the way people perceive people of different color today. And again, not a universal oh, rule. Oh, that, that, I agree with you completely. I know that yeah. happens. I mean, I mean, the, the, the mental slavery is huge amongst everyone. So is, so is the entitlement though on the other end of the scale. Sure. So, so I think, I think, I think to diminish the notion and the theory of white privilege because there are anomalies is intellectually lazy. Sure. I think what we need to do is understand whether or not privilege is purely uh, an enemy of progress is purely um, uh, a, a categorization that we can broadly say is, 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 cause I mean, like in some ways privilege can uplift multiple, and I'm speaking specifically about white privilege can uplift multiple areas of society if it's used in the right way or in the right. I mean, maybe the fact that I'm able to sell to a specific person in a specific way because I'm white and they can identify with me has given 25 people jobs. I mean, it's or, complex. Or you have created like hundreds of jobs, for yeah. example, from your supposed white privilege. I Which mean, is I, why I'm suggesting that it's something that maybe shouldn't be seen altogether negatively. Now, sorry, okay. I want to finish that, the point with one thought. I think racism is the structural abuse of white privilege. Okay. 
Okay. Which which now finishes where I was trying to get to. If 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 racism is a nuanced concept, and white privilege could be understood as a as an epidermal trust fund, as an as, as a potentially disproportionate advantage based purely on the color of my skin, then I think the ongoing conscious and subconscious abuse of that in society is is a better definition for racism and my willingness to accept or not accept my role in that is an important discussion to have and that, and that I guess is rounding off the points I was trying to make do you understand anything yeah yeah but my, my, my concern my concern about that is is if you if you redefine racism according to those terms uh, which is you know structural abuse using white privilege is that fairly or the structural abuse of the reality of white privilege okay. assuming we um, agree that it's very which w- if you don't that would that would then what apply in places like south africa maybe the united states maybe the united kingdom maybe europe perhaps okay what about japan where the japanese people are outwardly racist their their country's immigration policies are outwardly racist um that you can argue that they're correct or not or whatever. I'm not making a judgment call on that. I'm just saying that Japanese people like to only be around Japanese people, at least in the way they've legislated their country. Um, so the, your definition then, racism has a different meaning in Japan, for example, because I don't know, then it's Japanese privilege or, or, or you know, mainland person. But the privilege case you're making or, that there is Japanese privilege. So I, I you see, I, I don't, so I don't have an entitlement towards anything. So I don't believe because let's say I have this fantasy to live in Japan uh, and, you know, go to Tokyo and eat. I'm, I'm going to use so many stereotypes here and offend a, a whole bunch of people. But, you know, I don't just be, I don't have this idea that I want to go live in Tokyo, eat sushi and, you know, shack up with the geisha. Um, the, the reality is, 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 is that if I wanted to do that and that was what, what, and I felt I needed in the world. I don't get to say, well, it's not fair. I can't have that because you have Japanese privilege. Um, I can't get it. And therefore you need to do something, prostrate yourself in front of me, um, so that I can feel better yeah. about who I am and what I want in life. Yeah. And I'm, so don't hear what I'm not saying because I'm okay. not suggesting sure. that I must now fucking hate the fact that I'm white and and apologize left right. What I'm suggesting is that if I have a trust fund, if big if, and and I and I'm enjoying a large trust fund maybe because of my circumstance, there is a sense of responsibility around using that well. That's what I'm suggesting. I I completely agree, but I, but I, I think you might disagree on what well is. Um, well, I th- I think if you can yeah. make this. This country a better place for your offspring and their offspring, or whatever the case might be. Uh, it's quite easy to measure what well means, yeah. I think. So, mm. so, so we'll, we'll have, we'll have debates endlessly on this topic. And I think that's awesome because we come from different worldviews and you're able to, you're going to refine and sharpen whatever it is that I'm trying to express, which I often do very poorly. And hopefully I'm going to add a perspective or a different view or an angle to the disc because what doesn't happen. And I guess this is why I'm very grateful that you guys offered me the opportunity to be on your show. And it's to the point I was making earlier on around is that this whole point around privilege being uh, not acknowledging something's a problem because it doesn't feel like it's a problem for me is that the idea that as white dudes who hold opposing views and relatively well-to-do white views. Uh, excuse me. I'm Arabic. 
by the way. <laughs> White looking dudes. Sorry. You're more French to me. Uh, <laughs> That's what she said. I have no doubt. So, so, so and yes, I apologize no. for diminishing you based on the color of your skin. <laughs> Lol. Um, the whole, the whole thing I'm trying to get across to that earlier point is that this doesn't happen. These conversations don't happen enough. But, but I mean, I fully agree with you in that regard, but people are not charitable interlocutors ever. Well, I don't understand at least. Oh, they, they, they're not said. charitable debaters at the best of time. It's the, it's the sound bite that counts. It's come onto my show and I'll switch off your mic and I'll just berate you for half an hour. What happened to us, by the way? Um, people don't want to have these debates because they, i.e., they're not rigorous. Yeah. Uh, they, their philosophy is very, this foundation is very shaky mm. and it's just much easier to have that fucking soundbite, right? This is where they say, but you have white privilege and because you don't acknowledge it, it just shows how much privilege you actually have. Which is a circular argument, which is. I, I get that. Relations. You guys right. are getting a little defensive um, <laughs> about a particular, I, I don't know who no, no, you're talking about. No, I can't no, imagine no. who you're talking no, about. So Ramon's talking about a, a, another show that's on this, this platform called Frankly Speaking, okay. uh, in which, uh, oh, the, yes, that we know. were, we, we were asked to come on the show to have a discussion and then had mics muted and, and basically it didn't start off as a discussion. It started off as an all out attack. But I think that show is representative of a lot of debates in the media and in the public sphere. The debates are not done in good faith from 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 all sides. So, so you you want to have a sorry you want to have a discussion about, for example, white privilege, and we're having a discussion. Yeah. Um, some people would find this discussion a problem, by the way, because they would say, "Well, it's three white guys having a discussion about white privilege." So yeah. if you're woke, this is not an acceptable conversation. Well, I've heard as many in inverted commas woke people say, "This is the this is the discussion that needs to have." Why are you not having a public debate around this thing that affects me? So they, there are two sides okay. to that. So they, they may do that. Um, the other thing I've been told repeatedly uh, is shut up. So the, a lot of people don't want to have a debate, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, they they want to say there is white privilege. So I could never – in fact, I tried on that, that show, for example, and I've tried in numerous other conversations and either on social media or otherwise to say – I don't believe white privilege exists. And I, I, it basically either I don't get that far or when I get there, I get told, you're wrong. Shut up. Sit down. Uh, this is not your conversation to have. You have no right to kind of say that. And so that debate doesn't, doesn't happen. So, you know, that's, that's one of the problems with, with approaching this topic is some people feel that by having a certain, whatever factor it is that they've designated to, to you, it can be white privilege. It can be race in itself. Um, gender, for example, is now a big one. Yeah. Um, I saw the other day there was a debate online around uh, – there was an, an article published, The Independent, I think, in the UK, published an article that said um, something to the effect of uh, period pains are – and have been discovered to be, you know, exceptionally painful things uh, on, uh, you know, an objective pain scale. And why isn't medicine doing anything about this? And then, of course, the, the comments all come down, well, you know, well, because medicine is full of men. Well, actually, factually, it's not. Um, then the, the other comments men wrote there, well, um, you know, it's not that medicine hasn't done anything about it. Or whatever men wrote, there was a woman to write back. Um, who are you? You don't have a uterus or sorry. I don't, I, it doesn't seem as you, if you have a vagina or shut up. Uh, that's, that's the conversation that's going on. 
and, and this is right back to our original point about the responsibility of publishing and the intricacies and the nuances of publishing and why social media can be either a very powerful tool or a very mm. dangerous tool and very seldom anything in between. What I think is important for people who consider themselves intellectually rigorous to consider is that um, – and this is where we need to wrestle with the stuff that makes us really uncomfortable – is that just because – a whole lot of people elected to comment on that post and go, shut the fuck up. You're a man. You have no right to be part of this conversation. Doesn't mean that there's gender, no gender inequality in the workplace. We can't take the anomaly to dismiss the, the possible reality okay. in another area. You know what I mean? So we can't I go, agree. let's dismiss all feminist arguments and let's dismiss any conversation around gender inequality mm. because there are assholes that Said, sure. sit the fuck down sure. on the internet. But but some of the arguments are are poorly <laughs> are poorly like, picked. I'm totally going to do that. Uh, no, but some of the arguments are poorly picked. For absolutely, example, absolutely. so for, so one of the the major the major lazy. thrust of Western feminism in the past uh, what three four years has been the gender wage gap. Okay, mm. uh, even people who aren't. You, you, in America and don't pay much attention to it, South Africans, for example, will quote the 77 cents on the dollar story. And yes. I've had that quoted to me as a South African rand thing. Someone actually yes. said, women earn 77, 77 cents, cents for rand. every rand. Yeah. Okay. For which there is absolutely no data for. Sure. Um, the data that comes from the United States is that that is completely incorrect. Okay. It's a lifetime comparison it's women versus men over a certain period and if you calculate it like that not taking into account individual choices made by people like women um and men as well then yes you might get down to 77 cents when you uh, when you add in for all the other factors at best it's a six cents difference I'm, at best i'm i'm sure our listeners are aware of the wage gap and well, and, and I, and good ma- maybe they, so. So they, that's what they push, right? They push that that argument. It's yes. a disproven argument, so yes. it's not fact based. We should chuck it, and then we can have other arguments about yeah. gender equality and whether there is or isn't. And maybe we can find some place where there is a, a fact that we can show. Okay, there aren't as many women. For example, in this field, and the, it is because of discrimination, it's not because of choices, as as one. So I've, so I've got you. And I guess what I'd encourage the listeners to do and what I'd encourage, because I certainly do it myself, because, again, we want to Occam's our way to a, a simple solution to the things that cause us pain, is to avoid dismissing an entire theory, possibility, hypothesis, uh, narrative based purely on fallible examples or uh, anomalies that are clearly incorrect or factually uh, faulty. Because just that, 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 for me, that is in it, in and of itself intellectually lazy. And I think we, we well, could yeah. do better than that. I mean, I, I mean, of course we agree with that. The, the exception does not prove the rule or disprove the rule or whatever the case might be. But most people, unfortunately, and this is just my lived experience, most people in the public sphere do not want to have honest conversations. Yeah. No, that's fair enough. So, I, I yeah. suppose, I suppose. What I'm asking for or what I'm interested in hearing about, and maybe this is something that, that your listeners could, could give us some feedback on is, are, are there enough spaces? And they don't have to be completely public, but are there spaces where we have discussions around these topics without feeling like we, we have to identify with a particular group in order to have a meaningful discussion around? So it's easy for me to discuss uh, BE with all my white business owner mates because it's not a, 
difficult discussion. Kind of everybody's yeah. kind of going to op- operate from the same departure point. I guess what I'm saying is, I appreciate this because we can hold very different views and still respect each other and still hmm. ha- have have a, uh, a rigorous discussion. But we, there's not enough of those spaces. So, so just uh, sorry, John. Yeah, a, go a for question it. for me: How do you balance individualism with Collectivism in terms of that white privilege narrative. Well, not narrative, the white privilege argument that you made, which I think is, is, is a, a one that I haven't heard before. I'm not going to, to refute it because I don't, I need to study it more. But how do you, because we, we are ardent, ardent individualists. We think that if, if someone is carrying a Nazi flag and they want to kill Jews, okay, cool. They're Nazi. They're dickheads. Allow them to shout in the corner and, and that's it. Uh, but we're not going to say, Everyone around him is a Nazi or Or anyone who supports his right to carry the flag is a Nazi or something like that. So how do you how do you as a liberal, uh, self described, there's that balance. Uh, for us there's no balance. The individual counts for everything. But are you able to have a balance, do you think? No, maybe maybe that is one of the things that I'm wrestling with from a tension or creative tension perspective because I I know for a fact, as we said earlier on, I know for a fact that there are many cases and many factual cases to disprove any notion around the narrative of white privilege. One might be the hobo that stands at the corner of the road that looks very white but also super poor and is clearly not in, enjoying any privilege right now. Um Unless, of course, more people give him money just because he's white and not because he's black. Um, and, and, and I suppose, I suppose, I, I, I can't, I can't separate them from a binary argument perspective because they feel, I nearly use the word, I nearly use the word intersectional, uh, but they feel. Intersectional, intersectional is interesting. Interdependent. Right. Um, yeah, and I think, yeah. So, so, so my, my experience again is one that seems to edify that narrative and at least the theory. And I, and I feel time and time again, like there are possibilities for me to dig deeper into it without dismissing it because I'm feeling uncomfortable that it challenges my individualistic worldview or, you know what I mean? So right. I don't feel like I need to dismiss any notion of that possibility because it conflicts with one element of my core belief system. And, and, and again, that's, that's where the rigor comes in, right? Uh, the bottom line is, the bottom line is, I think f- for me, f- in my experience, it's been quite liberating treating it as something that I don't have to feel hateful or insecure about is, is, is decide. And maybe that's just an excuse. Maybe I'm just being, you sure. know, taking it easy on myself. Yeah. I don't know. Like a white rich dude would do, right? Uh, but, but, Thinking of it as, as a trust fund, and I find it a useful analogy, has been a way for me to at least host meaningful discussions with people of all walks of life around around the topic. And that, for me, has been a useful journey. Okay. I mean, that's fair. I mean, I, I just find the whole thing very strange because it's almost impossible for me to feel bad about make someone else feel bad about myself, if that makes sense. Sure. I'm quite happy with who I am. I'm quite happy with the choice that I made. And uh, it's difficult for other people to really get in, under my skin and make yeah. me feel uh, insecure or doubtful. Um, so that's why the white privilege thing doesn't work on me because I just, I just, first of all, I don't think it's, it's true. Secondly, I don't think it's even useful. I think categorizing by race, whether you're arguing about IQ differences, whether you're arguing about quotas, whether you're arguing about... Any transformation culture, or any of those want, topics. Yeah. I think every single time um, there is a question about different races and different groups and the differences between them, the outcomes are always negative. Always negative. Sure. So I don't even think, I mean, race is not even a thing to me. And, and I think even just talking about it in this way, 
is actually not that helpful. But I did want your opinion on white privilege. That's why we're talking about it. <laughs> I've never got a, a satisfactory answer to this question, and I'm not lumbering it all on to you. I don't expect you necessarily to have one. You want to have discussions. I think discussions are valuable to a point, but I think that they are had so that we can try to find solutions to problems mm. um, and the way we live and the way we approach life. And if I accept white privilege so far and I take it all on, so far, all I can see that it is meant to then happen is that I am meant to feel extreme guilt for my privilege. Uh, I am meant to signal that guilt by virtue signaling. Um, that would be taking on other people who haven't uh, accepted their privilege uh, publicly. Um, that would be, uh, you know, saying the right thing in the right instance that uh, white people should say. Uh, Great example from this last week was Lord, the singer, uh, apologizing on Twitter to the entire world that white people are the cause of all problems. Um, uh, you know, that is, that is what I can see is so far offered as a solution. So even if I could buy in, I can't buy into that because it's not a solution. And as far as I can tell, the People who really go deep into this, the Peter Howes of the world, you know, he spends his day tweeting probably 300 times a day about what a terrible human being he is because he has low melanocytes in his skin. Um, and he does nothing. He has not moved to given up his house and moved to a township to try and integrate better, for example. Um, I very much doubt he sold his car to try and be like the majority of people in this country who are black and don't have cars. Um, I highly doubt he's changed his eating habits uh, so that he doesn't spend 150 rand a day on average on food and rather spends 25. Um, so I, I, what is – if we're going to go down that road, what does it help? What's the, what's the solution? Yeah, um, I don't know. And like I said, I don't expect I, to lumber you with I, having I, the answer, but this is the, my part of my problem with it. I, I, I find it a lens with which I can make um, smarter choices about the way I conduct myself in my context. Okay. doesn't mean necessarily drastic lifestyle changes sure. because, as you rightly point out, the – the ridiculous um, uh, recipe around luck and the variables that go into what color you are, you land up coming out the vagina looking like and what gender and so on. So I, I believe that that is all cosmically impossible <laughs> to predict. And, sure. and uh, so I, I and believe that you shouldn't be view. punished for that. Exactly. But I'm not suggesting that I feel mm. punished for it. Mm. So yeah. that's the important. And, and I wouldn't that, want Peter House to do all those things, yeah. by the way. I just I'm think it's hypocritical. I would. <laughs> I'm, su I'm suggesting that I come from a a legacy and a history of decisions that are that 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 are in some way, shape, or form attached to the color that I am today, and that being cognizant of how other people experience that, because it's easy to go, it's difficult for white privilege, or at least for people to get under my skin. But I don't yet know what it's like to be a black person. I don't know. Broadly speaking, so again, not all black people are the same. So I'm not suggesting that kind of reductionist argument. But so, if you want to feel that way, go to Dubai during Ramadan. 
as I as I did that, by mistake. That is it's, that is one way to do it. It's yes. pretty awful. I just need to look more Arabic, and then I'll be okay. So if you could help me out there, but but what I do, what I do think is that for me, and I cannot speak for all of my white dude friends or whatever it might be. For me, it's been a useful way as a capitalist, as a business person, as an entrepreneur, as a what I think is a conscious and deliberate South African, not a patriotic South African. Patriotism is a fucking choice, not an obligation. Mm-hmm. I think that it's been a way for me to make constructive sense of the environment that I'm in and to live more fully as a result. Cool. So what I'm hearing is that it's your way of being altruistic. No, it's my way of being a human. It's my way of making sense in the con- or sense of the context that I'm in mm-hmm. and being useful and happy personally in the context that I'm in. All right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's, that's perfectly reasonable yeah. to me. I, I, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't use it the same way, but I mean, I, I've, I, I use things to find to to be happy where you might find it also. Which is exactly strange. the argument that would be leveled at me by a Christian going, "I believe in Jesus for these reasons." So I understand the yes. fallibility of the argument. Yeah. But that is, and and based on the evidence that's been presented to me and the life experience that's been presented to me, something that makes sense. And I yeah. guess that's our journey. You do remind me of, of, of a Christian who, not a Christian, of a religious person who is. Yeah, we have been picking on the Christians a lot. He is faithful, uh, and, and believes, but doesn't really, you know, put it out there or, or try to, you know, inculcate anyone else. And then when you question them, they're like, no, it's not scientific. It's not, there's no like grand scheme. I, I just like it. Except it for me, it is me scientific. Meaning. So I feel I have data to support oh, my belief really? system. I do. Oh, right. Okay. If you use economic data and things like that, yes, perhaps. And inequality and, and stats. And I feel I have. So, because sure. I'm, I hope, intellectually rigorous with my beliefs. Okay. I'm hard on my fucking beliefs. But even, you know? even if, I would argue, even if you didn't have any data to support your view, the fact that you don't proselytize it is, is beneficial in and of itself. People find meaning in things that don't make sense. Potentially. All the time. Yeah. And that's perfectly fine yeah. to me, at least. Shall we? Uh, I'd love to go into the data, but I think let's let's leave that for a different discussion. And uh, should we leave it there? Yes, are you because having, are you now I'm fucking sure. sweating. I'm like, <laughs> Jesus, what data can I pick on now? Uh, no, no, look, like Ramon says, you can pick on data, but there's two sides to to a lot of that data. I think we would use similar data. You would use a Gini coefficient, for example, to to show, and you know that Gini coefficient would then, if you split it into race groups, but the best, you would. You I mean, the best thing about our data is it's, it's the state's data, the ANC's data. <laughs> Yeah, well, anyway, let's, let's, let's leave it for a different chat. Um, cool. That was, that was interesting. I really appreciated the opportunity, guys. And thanks for stretching my brain and for the chance to, I guess, be part of your conversation. It was really cool. No, I mean, we, we I, I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, I met, I met you three minutes before we walked in, in here, to be honest. Uh, but it was besties on Facebook. So, uh, by the way, my kid is cuter than yours. Cool. <laughs> Right, I better, I better, I better, I better both get cut off now. Thank you to Mike Stopforth for uh, coming on the show and for giving us his views on things. Um, Mike, you want to be found, I'm sure. Um, is your is your Twitter handle at Mike Stopforth? That is it. All right, cool. Uh, so you can find Mike and also at Cerebra because they've got a whole bunch of books, uh, free eBooks that you can download, which uh, have some useful information really thank you in them yeah so uh yeah i'd recommend that uh, ch- check it out ramon final words I'll, I'll let you i'll put your mic back on 
Oh, thank you, yeah. Um, no, no final words at all. Uh, very nice to you. I, I, I like the fact that you're taking a break from like politics and economics, as our listeners hinted at earlier. Yeah. So if, if you like just to have like just Joe Rogan it all the way, uh, let us know. I, I quite enjoy it. Ramon, Ramon can't wait, but I've, I've made it very clear to him that the way Joe Rogan gets his guests to just chill out and talk about crap for three hours is to get them high. Um, which probably won't be happening on the show since we both avoid drugs. Um, Incredible conduit, though, to be fair. So, I mean, like, if that were the way that you were, but not that you were avoided. But this was a great chat. Cool. Moving on. Indeed. Indeed. You can find us on Twitter at Renegade underscore report on Facebook. We have a page and we also have a group where we discuss stuff. If you're interested, if you don't agree with us, even more so, we want you on the group. Uh, it's great to have opposing views provided you can just put them down on, on the so-called page without being too ridiculously disrespectful uh, to other people. And thank you for listening. We will catch you next time. If you really enjoyed the show, don't forget you can find us on Patreon and support the show. Thanks so much. Cheers. Bye. This is CliffCentral.com.